following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore, for our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. So we're in a series on the Holy Spirit. This is week three. Uh, if you're just here up to this, if just here today, then uh, what we've done so far is looked through the biblical story. Uh, through the Old Testament and the beginning so far of the New Testament at the role of the Holy Spirit. And we're planning over six weeks to, to walk through the major uh, points in the biblical story and look at who the Holy Spirit is. So, so far, we've looked at creation. We've looked at the work of the Holy Spirit in creation, sustaining life, giving life, taking life away. Uh, and then last week, we looked at the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus, and the way that the Holy Spirit enables you and me to cry out, Abba, Father, just as Jesus did. Because the Holy Spirit draws us into this circle of love between Father and Son and Spirit. So that we can experience that same intimacy with God that Jesus himself had. That's the gift of the Spirit to us. And I don't know how you've gone and uh, maybe you've tried calling God Abba, Father this week. That's uh, not easy, hey, those of you that have tried that, uh, especially when you think about the fact that Abba means daddy, it's not comfortable, is it, trying to address God as Abba, Abba, Father. Um, it's just a little bit unnatural. We want to try and keep that distance. And of course, the term does still keep that distance. It still respects God as Father, but boy, it really draws us near. And I encourage you to keep going with that. Keep working on that. Keep practicing calling God, Abba, Father, because when you do that, you are naming the way that you're intimate with God, even if you don't feel it, even if it's a bit awkward, even if it's a bit uncomfortable, you're naming this reality that the Spirit has drawn you that close to God. That's true whether you feel it or not. You are there. And uh, we've got this amazing title that we can call God because of that. So today, we're going to move a little bit further ahead again in the biblical story, and we're going to look at the event that I think is the most significant event in the whole Bible around the work of the Holy Spirit, the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So if you've got a Bible, turn over there. I think this is the landmark event in the whole biblical story concerning the work of the Spirit. The way that the Holy Spirit works before Pentecost is fundamentally different to the way the Holy Spirit works after Pentecost. There is a huge line in the sand on this day. It's a watershed moment, not just for understanding the Holy Spirit, but for understanding God's entire plan of salvation and how that is being outworked now in the world. For a lot of my Christian life, I didn't make a big deal of the day of Pentecost. It just didn't really register very strongly for me. Uh, the big events as I saw them in the Bible were Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. That was kind of the, the capstone of our faith, and of course that's, that's essential. But Pentecost just didn't really register for me very much. Um, you may have had a similar experience, or you may have had a very different experience. Uh, if you come from a Pentecostal church, then probably your experience was the opposite. Pentecost for you, I mean the, whole, the name Pentecostal comes from this day, and this event that's narrated in Acts chapter 2. And so if you come from a Pentecostal church, probably Pentecost was a huge deal for you. And Pentecostal theology kind of emanates out of Acts 2 as its starting point. The day of Pentecost is sort of the, the, the capstone of Pentecostal theology. But also, if you come from a tradition that's more high church, 
like Anglican or Catholic, where you follow the traditional church calendar, because every year on the traditional church calendar in May, there is Pentecost Sunday. And that's the day where for centuries Christians have marked this moment in the biblical story where the Holy Spirit has been poured out. And so if you come from that tradition, you'd be very used to every year commemorating or celebrating Pentecost Sunday. And I think that's awesome. I think we should do that more. Pentecost deserves a Sunday. It deserves more than a Sunday, but it should be commemorated. I think it should be commemorated alongside Christmas and Easter because it teaches us to mark the significance of this day. We think that Christmas and Easter, Jesus' birth and Jesus' death and resurrection, we think they are the big deal because we have a calendar day that goes along with those things and we make a big deal of them at the time so that in our minds it sends the message that that is the most important thing. But I think Pentecost should be right there alongside them. It's part of the gospel. It's part of that same series of events that makes up the gospel. Jesus is born. Jesus dies. Jesus is raised from the dead. Jesus sends the Spirit. Those events follow each other in succession and they're all just as important as each other. So my challenge this morning is to convince you that Pentecost is important. That's all I'm going to try and do, okay, this morning, is to convince you that Pentecost is worth celebrating, remembering, and that it has massive implications for our experience and understanding of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so let's go to Acts chapter 2. In fact, just before we get there, just go one chapter back to Acts 1. You want to start with this verse in Acts 1 that sets the scene for what's going to happen on the day of Pentecost. Now, these are words that Jesus spoke in Acts 1, verse 4, just before he ascended to heaven, while he was still with his disciples on earth, some of the last recorded words that he said. Acts 1, verse 4. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So, Jesus is saying to his disciples, wait here in Jerusalem, don't go in a few days, you are going to receive this gift of the Spirit, this gift that God has promised, and you are going to be baptized or immersed in the Holy Spirit. That is the prophecy that was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Okay, so when we read Acts 2, we should read it in the context of this prophecy that Jesus says. This is what's going to happen in a few days' time. When the disciples were filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, this is their baptism in the Holy Spirit. Okay, so keep that in mind as we go through Acts chapter 2. It's going to become important. So flick over. We'll start at the beginning of Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Now, stop there for a moment. When we think about uh, the day of Pentecost, if you think about it at all, we generally think about it as a one-off event. And of course, this was a one-off event, but Pentecost was observed every year. Pentecost itself was an annual celebration for Jews. It was called the Feast of Weeks. It fell 50 days after Passover. It was part of, maybe this guy's going to talk about it on Friday night, Scott Brown, maybe uh, the, one of the Jewish celebrations that is fulfilled in Christ. That just as Passover was the Israelites being led out of Egypt, part of Pentecost was the celebration of Moses giving the law at Mount Sinai, which happened about 50 days later. So Pentecost was the day when Jews celebrated the giving of the law, and it was also the first fruits harvest. It was the beginning of harvest season 
So Pentecost was an agricultural festival as well. And it was the time when, if you were a crop farmer, you would take the first sheaf of barley or whatever it is you were growing, and you'd bring it into the temple and bring that as an offering to God in the temple. The sign that the rest of the harvest is on its way and your commitment to bring the first and best of your crop into the temple to God. So it had Pentecost had every year this twin significance, the giving of the law and the first fruits harvest. And it was an international festival. So Jews from all over the world were encouraged to be in Jerusalem for Pentecost. One of only three times in the year where this was strongly, strongly encouraged. Jewish men and their sons in particular, wherever they were throughout the world, throughout the Jewish diaspora, they were living in all, all kinds of parts of the Roman Empire, but Jews would try to make this pilgrimage to get to Jerusalem for Pentecost, for the week of Pentecost. So that week, every year, the population of Jerusalem would swell. All these Jews, and while they were Jews, they were international Jews. They spoke many different languages because they resided in many different countries. So it was, Jerusalem was never more international than it was in the Feast of Weeks, on Pentecost. And that makes it the perfect setting for what is about to happen. Okay, so that's the day of Pentecost. Let's look at what happened there, verse 2. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now, if you were here the first Sunday that we talked about the Holy Spirit, this should start to trigger some connotations for you. You remember in the Old Testament, the main image of the Spirit, the Ruach of God, is breath, wind, powerful air. This is the imagery that's being produced here. So Jews would have been very used to thinking about the Holy Spirit as this powerful wind of God. So when we hear of this, this violent or powerful wind filling the room, we should think this is the Holy Spirit, represented as wind, represented as the breath of God, filling the space where the disciples are gathered. This is the Ruach of God now coming upon the followers of God in a unique and distinct way. Verse 3, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, I don't want to climb into the whole issue of speaking in tongues too much today. Sorry to disappoint you. I know it's right here in the text. I'm going to say a little bit about that later on, and then I'm going to try and circle back to this whole issue of speaking in tongues in a couple of weeks when we talk about the gift of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit. But suffice to say here, that this moment of the Spirit being poured out is accompanied by this miracle of Jesus' followers being able to speak in other tongues or other languages, which is so appropriate because you've got followers of God from all over the world here, these Jewish people, followers of Yahweh, in Jerusalem. What better gift to give, what better authenticating sign to give than the gift of these disciples being able to praise God, speak the wonders of God, in precisely the languages that all these various people spoke. So the outpouring of the Spirit here is accompanied by this gift of tongues. We'll come back to that in a little while. Now, the main point, though, that's being brought out here is that this is the very first time ever that anybody other than Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit in a permanent, abiding way. That's the point. Let me say that again. This is the first time, the day of Pentecost was the first time in history when anyone other than Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit in a permanent and abiding way. That just didn't happen in the Old Testament. 
Just because you were an Israelite in the Old Testament doesn't mean you had the Holy Spirit. You could be a very faithful Israelite in the Old Testament. You could keep the law. You could give sacrifices at the temple. You could worship at the temple. But it didn't mean that you had the Holy Spirit in a personal sense. The Holy Spirit just wasn't given to every Tom, Dick, and Harry in the Old Testament. It didn't happen. The Holy Spirit only came upon certain people, very specific people, and only for certain tasks and only at certain times. So one of the main ones is the Holy Spirit was given to kings for the task of leadership. Kings were anointed And this would represent the presence of the Spirit filling them for the duration of their kingship. The Spirit of God came upon the judges. We're talking about this in our series on judges. For the task of military victory and for the duration of that victory. The Holy Spirit came upon craftspeople in the book of Exodus for the construction of the tabernacle. The Holy Spirit came upon the prophets for the work of prophecy, but only certain people at certain times for certain tasks. It was not generally given. He was not generally given in a general sense to all followers of God. Even Jesus' disciples didn't have the Holy Spirit. You know, we can look at them sometimes and we think, why don't don't they get it? Why aren't they understanding the parables? Why aren't they understanding what Jesus is saying? Well, don't be too hard on them. They didn't have the Spirit. They were walking with Jesus, they were living with Jesus, and he was filled with the Spirit like nobody else was. But the disciples did not yet possess the Holy Spirit. It's not until the day of Pentecost that anyone other than Jesus is filled with the Spirit in this enduring and abiding and personal sense. And I think we could go as far as to say that Pentecost is the day when these disciples fully became Christians in the sense of receiving the Holy Spirit. Because from this point on in the New Testament, the mark of being a Christian is that you possess the Holy Spirit. That's what makes a person a Christian. If they have the Spirit, they're in. You're a Christian. You're a follower of Jesus. Until this point, nobody had had. There were no Christians before Pentecost in the truest, fullest sense of that term. The disciples fully become Christians and receive the Spirit for the first time at Pentecost. So this is a pretty significant day. Now, to catch the full significance of what's going on here, go down a bit further to where Peter addresses the crowd. In verse 14, Peter stands up and he starts explaining what's happening. Because you've got all these disciples speaking in other languages. People are amazed, people are perplexed, people are confused. Peter starts interpreting what's happening And one of the first things he does in his Pentecost sermon is that he quotes from Joel chapter 2. He quotes this Old Testament prophecy from the book of Joel. It starts in verse 17. The quotation runs down to verse 21. Let me just read you a bit of it. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Now, we hear that phrase, the last days, and we think that that's the, the time immediately before Jesus returns again. You know, the last days. Are we living in the last days? When, when's it going to be the last days? That would have made no sense at all to Jewish prophets to think of it that way. For them, for the, for the Jewish way of thinking, history was divided into two ages. Very simple. There was the age, uh, the present age, and there was the age to come. Present age 
was simply the age that they were living in. It was their current experience of reality. The age to come was the age that every Jew looked forward to, the day when God would finally intervene, when God would step back onto the stage of history as it was and make everything new, when He would return to His people, He would return to Jerusalem, when He would come to judge the world, He would come to establish His kingdom. And that age to come, that would be the last days. It was the equivalent of saying the age to come, not a time leading up to it. The last days were this new age when God would intervene, when God would make everything right. He would restore the world to the way that it was supposed to be. Those were the last days that Jews looked forward to. And the promises in Scripture of what would happen when the age to come arrived, when the last days finally arrived, one of the great promises is it would be accompanied by an unprecedented outpouring of God's Spirit. Joel's not the only prophet to mention this. Ezekiel does as well. There will be an unprecedented outpouring of the Spirit of God when the age to come finally arrives. God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. I don't think that means every single person on earth. I think the distinction is not only on my people Israel, but on all nations, on all flesh. So when the age to come arrives, the Spirit is going to arrive in a new and powerful way. So here's Peter, stands up on the day of Pentecost, starts quoting that scripture and says, that's exactly what's happening today. What's he saying? The age to come is here. Today it has arrived. The day that we've all looked forward to, the great and glorious day of the Lord, it is here. The age to come has arrived. We're in it right now. That's why Pentecost marks this historic transition in Scripture between the present age or the old age as it is now and the age to come, the last days. The last days begun on the day of Pentecost. It's not the time just before Jesus returns. We're in the last days and we've been in the last days since Acts chapter 2. The last days was when the Spirit was poured out and that marks the transition point between one age and the next, between the age of the flesh and the age of the Spirit, between the age of the old covenant and the age of the new covenant. This is a big deal. I would even suggest to you that the dividing line in your Bible between Old Testament and New Testament should probably go between Acts 1 and Acts 2. That's where the real division takes place, between Old Covenant and New covenant, old age, new age is right here on the day of Pentecost. Now, you say, well, hang on, didn't it start with Jesus, though? Didn't this new age begin? Didn't he establish it? Well, yes, he did, of course. Jesus established the kingdom of God, demonstrated the kingdom of God. Jesus died, he rose again to bring about this new creation. Jesus did establish this new age, but when the Gospels finish and Jesus ascends to heaven, the only person who's entered the new age so far is Jesus. It's only relevant so far to him. He's been the bearer of the Spirit. He's established the kingdom of God. He's brought about the new age, but so far he's the only person in it. Pentecost is when the doors of the kingdom fling wide to us. Pentecost is when the gateway to the new age opens up and we get to come in. Pentecost is the day when all the benefits of the atonement of Jesus' death, life, resurrection are applied to us, to his followers. And we get to enter into this new age, the age of the Spirit, and receive the personal presence of the Spirit in our lives. 
And this wasn't just something that happened to the very first disciples. It wasn't just something that happened to that initial group in the upper room. Look at the way that Peter finishes his sermon. Jump down to verse 37 of Acts chapter 2. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So Peter just opens the invitation up to everyone. Not just the initial gathering of disciples, but every person. So far in the whole biblical story, God's redemptive activity has been focused on the nation of Israel. God elected Israel. He has journeyed with Israel. He has brought the Messiah forth from the nation of Israel. But now, on the day of Pentecost, the invitation goes out to all nations. It's part of what makes Pentecost so significant. Now, the redemptive work of God is extending out beyond Israel to encompass all nations, every tongue, every tribe, every nation. All flesh are now invited in. And Peter said that includes those who are far off. I think a reference to non-Jews. Not even just Jews living all over the world, but non-Jewish people. This is not to exclude Jewish people from salvation. They enter the kingdom exactly the same way as we do, through Christ. But now the invitation of God is to all nations, all people everywhere to come into this salvation, to receive the gift of the Spirit. And what better sign to accompany that than the gift of tongues? What better sign to accompany this historic moment when the gospel is expanding out beyond Israel to encompass all nations of the world, then the gift of being able to speak in the languages of the nations so that the nations hear the public praise of God in their own tongue. That's why tongues is so fitting for what's happening here because it is the praise of God in the nations and it signifies that salvation is no longer the exclusive possession of Israel. Now salvation is an inclusive gift of the Spirit to all people. And that invitation has come down through the centuries, through the centuries, down to us. So that even today, those who turn towards Jesus receive the gift of the Holy Spirit in their life. And that comes back to the day of Pentecost. The reason that we have that invitation today, the reason that we possess the Spirit, is because of these doors of salvation being opened up on the day of Pentecost. So now... Whenever a person turns their life towards Jesus, becomes a follower of Jesus, God gives them the gift of His Holy Spirit. If you belong to Jesus today, you have the Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. You may not feel it. You may not think so. You may feel disconnected from God, but you have the Holy Spirit living within you. It's the gift given when a person comes to Christ. The Holy Spirit is God's personal presence with you. He's the Spirit of Jesus. He's the personal presence of Jesus with you. While Jesus is in heaven with the Father until He returns again, the Spirit is the presence of Jesus in your life, within your body, in the absence of Jesus' physical presence. The Spirit is God's presence, God's empowering presence in your life, guiding you, encouraging you, teaching you, convicting you, strengthening you, 
to live the life of faith that God has given you to live and strengthening you to participate in the work of redemption that God is doing around the world. And you receive the Spirit at the moment that you become a follower of Jesus. Now, that raises a question of when exactly you received the Holy Spirit. Some of you can point to the exact time. And you remember. You remember when you gave your life to Jesus. Maybe you prayed a particular prayer or you went forward at an altar call or you just had a quiet moment with God, wherever it was. And you remember receiving the Holy Spirit. Maybe you felt something different at that moment. Maybe you didn't. That's okay. Other people don't remember it at all. I'm one of those people. As I look back in my life, I don't know exactly when I became a Christian. As best I can narrow it down, it happened sometime between the age of about 11 and 14, somewhere in there. I entered into a personal relationship with Jesus. I owned my faith for myself more. But I don't know when in there God gave me the gift of the Holy Spirit. I can't point to a particular time when that happened, but I think that's okay. The main thing is that I know now that I have the Holy Spirit, right? That I belong to Jesus. I know that the Holy Spirit lives in me. So if you can't point to the specific day and time that you received the Holy Spirit, that's okay. That's all right. It doesn't mean it hasn't happened. If you've given your life to Jesus, if you belong to Jesus, you have the Spirit. You have the gift of the Spirit. In that sense, we could be a bit cheeky and say all of us are Pentecostals. In the sense that we look back to Pentecost as an extremely important day the day when the Spirit was given, and the event that now enables us to receive the gift of the Spirit when we turn our lives towards Jesus too. Now, what about after that? Here's the tricky question. What about after you initially receive the Holy Spirit? Is that it? Do you get all of the Spirit at once? Is there more to come? Should we expect something else? What about when Jesus talked about being baptized in the Holy Spirit? Is that the same thing? As what happens when we first come to Jesus, is that a different thing? How does that all work? Well, not surprisingly, this is an issue on which Christians have different perspectives and disagree often quite strongly. So I'll give you my own take on this, but let me just say openly, this is only my own view. Uh, We don't have a doctrinal position on this at Shaw. We don't have a doctrinal view on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You may disagree with my view, and that's absolutely fine. We hold space at Shaw for a range of views on these non-essential issues. It's part of our ethos as a community. Let me just give you my own take on this. I think from Acts chapter 1, when Jesus talks about the baptism in the Holy Spirit that's going to happen in a few days' time, he's clearly thinking of Pentecost. So when the disciples receive the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, that is their baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's a fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy about exactly that event. I think from Acts chapter 2, the reception of the Spirit that the disciples have is the first time that they've ever received the Holy Spirit. They didn't have part of the Spirit before that. They hadn't previously received any of the Holy Spirit. So this is their initial reception of the Holy Spirit, and that is also their baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, I think you can put those two things together, and I would tentatively suggest that the baptism in the Holy Spirit is what happens when we initially receive the Spirit at conversion. That when you come to Christ and place your faith in Him, you are immersed in the Holy Spirit. You are baptized in the Spirit in the sense that the Spirit fills you. You are immersed into the presence of the Spirit and in turn, the Spirit immerses you into the presence of Christ. So I absolutely believe in the baptism in the Holy Spirit. I just think it happens at conversion. It's part of what happens when we initially come 
to Christ, not as a second subsequent experience. Now, you may disagree with that. I know some of you do. That's okay. We can hopefully still be a a, a unified fellowship as a church, even while there's diversity uh, around that issue. And let me say this. Even though I think the baptism in the Holy Spirit happens when a person is converted to Christ, I think it's absolutely possible for us to have subsequent experiences of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I think it's absolutely possible to be filled afresh with the Holy Spirit. The disciples were. In Acts chapter 2, it says they were filled with the Spirit. And then in Acts chapter 4, we read that they were praying together and the room where they were praying was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So what's happening there? They were already filled with the Spirit. Now they're filled with the Spirit? How does this work? Well, I think the most natural way of reading this is they were filled afresh. I don't think it means they didn't have the Spirit beforehand. I don't think it means that the Spirit was taken away temporarily. I think it means that as they prayed in Acts chapter 4, the Spirit was renewed within them. The Spirit rose up again, made His power and His presence known in their lives, filled them afresh. And I think that's absolutely possible for a Christian to be filled afresh with the Holy Spirit. doesn't mean you've lost the Spirit and you need to get Him back. It means that sometimes God can touch your life and you receive this fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which really is our fresh awareness of the Spirit who has always been there. But we ask that God would give us a fresh awakening of the power and the presence of His Spirit in our life. I remember several years ago, there was a time in my life when I I just felt really disconnected from God. I just wasn't walking closely with Him and felt like there was a huge chasm between me and God. And one night I sat down to try and spend some time with God and reconnect with Him. And I had this overwhelming sense of God's presence with me and within me. And the image that was in my mind at the time that just grabbed a hold of my heart was the image of the prodigal son just being held in the embrace of the Father. Just being held there. And I just had that strong sense, this is where I am. I'm in the embrace of the Father. I'm the Son. I'm just held, and I didn't have to do anything, didn't have to say anything, didn't have to pray. In fact, I had this strong sense God didn't want me to do anything or try and be anything, just to be there and be held, and to know what it is to be held within the embrace of the Father. Now, I think that was a time when the Spirit filled me afresh. The Holy Spirit just rose up within me and gave me that sense again of what it means to be a son. You know, sometimes there's those times when it's like you're born again, again. You just come into a fresh awareness of the grace of God. That's the Spirit of God rising up in us, being manifest again, filling us afresh. Those times are precious. Those times are special. And we can ask for those times. We pray that prayer on Sunday mornings, prayed it this morning. We often pray for our worship leaders that they would be filled afresh with the Spirit of God, anointed by the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on our worship leaders for the task of leading worship. Sometimes people pray that for me, the elders, other people pray that, that I would be filled afresh with the Holy Spirit for the task of preaching. But it's not just public ministries in the church that we can pray that for. We can pray that you are filled afresh with the Spirit of God today. If your relationship with God is just lifeless, and dry, and mundane, 
if you've just stagnated in your own relationship with Christ and you sense nothing of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, you can pray that God fills you afresh with His Spirit, that God pours His Spirit out in your life again. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you already have the Holy Spirit. We've got to be clear about that. You already possess the Spirit. But that connection you have with the Spirit can become so weak and our faith can become so lifeless. And we can pray, it's okay to ask, that God fills you afresh with His Spirit. That He breathes life afresh into you and manifests His Spirit in your life in a new and powerful way. And just as we can pray that in our own individual lives, that we'd be filled afresh with the Holy Spirit, we can also pray that as a community, that the Holy Spirit would fill us afresh, that the Holy Spirit would renew His power and His work and His presence among us together. Because after all, this is part of the Spirit's work on the day of Pentecost. It's an essential part of the Spirit's work. The Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost was not just filling the individual hearts of individual Christians. The Spirit was forming a community. The Spirit was birthing a church. That's what's going on here. As soon as Peter finishes his sermon, what's the very next thing that happens? 3,000 people respond. They're filled with the Spirit. And then what? They form community. Very next phrase, you've got this beautiful picture of a Spirit-filled community where there is hospitality, where there is generosity, where there is amazement at the things that God is doing. That's a spiritual, Spirit-filled community. And that's the Spirit's work. In our Western culture, we are so used to thinking about the Holy Spirit as this very personal, private possession. I receive the gift of the Spirit in my life, and it's, He's helping me live this life before God. But the Spirit is not only God's gift to you individually. The Spirit is God's gift to us communally. And just as much as you possess the Holy Spirit in your own heart, we possess the Holy Spirit together as a church. Just look at one final verse Flick over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 on this. We'll finish with this this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul talks about this idea of the, the gathered filling of the Spirit. In verse 16, he says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? Some of your translations just say the Holy Spirit dwells in you, but the you is plural there. It's talking about this community. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred. And you together are that temple. So here Paul is not just talking about an individual person being the temple of the Holy Spirit. He's saying that as a church, we are together the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that just as in the Old Testament, the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God filled Solomon's temple. So now in the New Testament age, the age of the Spirit, so now the Spirit of God fills the temple of the church. The Spirit of God dwells among us just as the glory of God dwelt within the earthly temple of the Old Testament. The Spirit inhabits us together as a church. Now, that's a mysterious concept. I don't know exactly how that works, but somehow we have a shared possession of the Holy Spirit. That's got a number of implications for us, doesn't it? That should change the way we worship, being more conscious of one another, Often in worship, we try and set ourselves off from one another, separate ourselves mentally and emotionally. I think an understanding that we are the shared inheritors of the Spirit means we should open ourselves up to one another in worship time, be conscious that we're worshiping God together, and we're celebrating that the Spirit inhabits our praises together. 
should remind us of our connectedness, our deep connectedness to one another, that we need each other in the spiritual life. We need each other if we are going to grow in the Spirit, because the Spirit's not just for us individually, the Spirit is for us community in community. This should make us want to be in relationship with one another. The Spirit dwells among us as well as within us. So, I don't know how good a job I've done of convincing you that the day of Pentecost is important. I hope you can see it, but I want to invite you to respond this morning to this. I want to invite you to respond to the gift that God gives, to the gift of the Spirit. And I want to encourage you, if, you, if you're a Christian here, you do possess the Holy Spirit. But if the Spirit of God is stirring your heart this morning, and you know that you need to be filled afresh with the Holy Spirit, then I want to invite you, as we sing our final song this morning, I want to invite you to come forward and to stand at the front here as we sing and have one of our elders come and pray for you, place a hand on you, and pray that you would be filled afresh with the Holy Spirit. If your relationship with God just feels like a dry riverbed, there's just no life to it. You're disconnected from God. You're a long way from Him. Maybe it's just been ages since you've really connected. It just feels mediocre. feels like you're going through the motions. There's just nothing there. I want to invite you this morning to have somebody pray that you would be filled afresh with the Holy Spirit, that the power of the Holy Spirit would come upon you afresh. God would renew His grace in your life, that God would give you a new vision of Jesus and who He is in all of His glory and all of His compassion and all of His kindness, that God would give you a new vision of who you are in all of your brokenness and weakness, but your chosenness and your infinite value before God. If you're struggling today, if you're really battling and you need God's power, the fresh filling of the Spirit in your life, I want to invite you to come forward. Have somebody pray that God would strengthen you for what you are going through, that the strengthening work of the Holy Spirit might be revealed in your life. You already have the Holy Spirit, but we can pray the Spirit would come upon you with fresh power. If you need God's wisdom for something that you're facing at the moment, if you're at a transitional point in life, I want to encourage you to come forward. And have somebody pray that God's Spirit would be manifest in your life, give you the guidance that you need, give you the wisdom that you need. We can pray for one another that the Holy Spirit would reawaken us, give us a fresh fire, give us fresh faith, give us fresh grace in our life, give us fresh forgiveness. You may be battling with temptation this morning and there's a pattern, there's a cycle that you're just so trapped in. You can't see your way out of it. This pattern of acting, pattern of speaking, pattern of thinking. Maybe it's an addictive cycle for you. I want to encourage you to come forward and have someone pray that that cycle would be broken, that the Spirit of God would set you free from that this morning. We have to believe the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is able to do these things in our life. The one who is within us is greater than the one who is within the world. So I invite you to come. If the Holy Spirit is stirring your heart this morning, just reaching out for that, I invite you to come. To stand. You don't, I'm not asking you to say anything. I'm asking you to stand here. Just stand in the presence of God and allow a brother or sister in Christ to place a hand on your shoulder and pray that you would be filled afresh with the Spirit of God. I invite you to come forward as we sing our final song this morning. Let's pray as we enter into that time. Holy Spirit, we know that you are here, but we ask for you to come now with fresh power. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would fill us afresh. And I pray, Lord, that you'd fill us afresh as a church community, that you would breathe fresh life 
into our gathering, into our fellowship, into our shared life together. Holy Spirit, come upon us afresh. Just as you breathe life into creation at the beginning, breathe life into us again. Revive us again, God. Lord, those who are weary this morning, those who are distant and disconnected from you, those who are struggling, those who need a fresh touch from you, Holy Spirit, we pray you'd come in power. God, we're not chasing after emotions today. We're not chasing after experiences. We want to acknowledge that this runs much deeper than emotion. This is your empowering in the deep recesses of our soul. Holy Spirit, come and awaken our soul again to your love, to your grace, to your infinite mercy. Holy Spirit, lead us to Jesus and let us see him. We know your role is to glorify the Son and the Father, always pointing us to them. So Holy Spirit, awaken us to the power of Christ in our lives. We wait upon you, Spirit of God. We cry out for you. We hunger and we thirst for your presence and your touch in our lives. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.